I don't um, I don't know many concert pianists, but our next um, speaker is um, a special and to me um, visibly extraordinary and kind man who um, I'm now slightly in awe of. Um, he has um, six albums to his name, um, two books. Um, he's an impassioned advocate for the force that music is, and he is comfortably uh, defying of um, the establishment. Uh, it gives me great pleasure, it's a real honor to bring to the stage Mr. James Rhodes.
Scorpio and Eurydice. By Gluck. Um, a really sad opera, um, a proper Greek tragedy, even worse than their banking system over there, I think. Um, and, and that piece is when Orpheus is going down into the underworld to try and rescue the love of his life, and he doesn't know if he's going to survive, if he'll find her, if he'll make it back, if she's alive or dead. And, um, and yet, even though it's such a sad piece of music, it's kind of that's the magic trick with classical for me, is that underneath that sadness, there's actually quite a lot of joy and, and surrender and hope. And um, it, it seems with classical music, even the really painful shit is actually quite lovely. Um, so maybe that's why I like it so much. And that, I mean, I remember, so we were getting in touch about um, you coming to Medicine Unboxed. I've been listening to that. And then only later, a couple of months later, the penny dropped that that was you playing it. Um, and then that myth, the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, of course, is one of a descent in, in, into um, a hellish universe, um, the force of music, love, much of which echoes and resonates um, a lot of what's happened to you over your life. Um, and I just wondered if we could think a little bit about, to begin with, um, and really important to be precise with the language here, what happened to you as a young child, to begin with. Is that all right? You can that? genuinely ask anything you want, <laughs> as long as you're happy to hear the answers. Yeah, I, I don't care. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And because we want to be precise about language, in fact, and you talk about this in your in your book, um, the word abuse is something we reserve for telling a traffic warden to fuck off. But of course, what happened to you between the ages of six and ten was that you were raped often by your PE teacher over the period of many years, of about five years. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a comedy, the book. Um, <laughs> it's very funny in bits. <laughs> it's, a, well, it's a book about child rape and, and classical music and suicide and mental illness. So, you know, it's not going to be in Tesco's anytime soon. But, um, but yeah, I think we have to be really careful with, with language. I, I was asked something, someone asked me today in an interview, um, and it just reminded me of something. I was doing a radio show interview, and, and the host said, so... When, when did you confess, you know, about what happened to you when you were a child? And I said, hang on, wait, what? Why am I, I confessing? <laughs> you know, we, we confess. Yeah, and it's, it's so funny, isn't it? We, you know, we read in the papers, people, you know, admit to suffering from depression or like, mm. you know, it, it's just, I think we need to be careful. And obviously child abuse is kind of a catch-all. And of course I use that expression. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think sometimes we need to be quite careful about the words we use. But reading this, reading your story, I suppose I was struck by the, f the force of it, the truth with which you communicated it. But also, particularly, I was struck by my phenomenal um, naivety uh, about the enduring, just the, just the perpetuated and enduring of effects of something horrendous and violent that happened at a young age, but the, the multiple ways in which that event permeates all of life, physically, emotionally, relationally, and your comments that the, the thing that really embeds itself in someone who that's happened to is this sense of shame, where it's almost impossible to communicate the truth of it because of that weight of shame. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the killer. And having spoken to a number of people who've been through similar experiences, it's the shame, which is the hardest thing to, to get through. It's the most toxic thing. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is 
even worse than the physical act itself. What happens when, when you're really young and something like this happens? You're with this guy and he's doing awful things. And then the next day or an hour later, you're with him and there are other people there. And you have to pretend everything's fine and you shake his hand and you smile and you say, yes, sir. And, um, and what that does is actually incredibly powerful. It causes, it, it bec you become kind of partners in crime. You, you collude with them because you, you keep it a secret. And so you're kind of bonded. And the longer that goes on, the harder it is to kind of break that silence. And the more you feel responsible um, and like you're both responsible for this thing that's happening, even if you can't put it into words because you can't when you're you know six or seven. That's, um, and I was I was found by a teacher, another teacher, and she found me kind of hysterical, blood going down my legs, and just begging not to be sent back to. Um, and she went to the head teacher, who said, "Oh, you know, he needs to toughen up. Forget it. Nothing's going on." And this was, you know, this was in the eighties, which was like a fucking heyday for for pedophiles. And and so you think, well, even if I did say something, nothing's going to happen. So you kind of accept it, and your brain as a child is still quite plastic, and it's still wiring itself up. And I think it develops slightly differently. Um, but don't get me wrong, I don't, this isn't, you know, the, the book itself, it's not a misery memoir. It's, it's really a love letter to, to yeah. music, to yeah. my son, to, yeah. um, but in much the same way as I'm a musician and I'm five foot 11, 10 and a half. Um, I, I, this is a part of me. This is, <laughs> you know, and I think it's important to talk about things. Like everyone here knows about Jimmy Savile, but, you know, 10 quid to one person who can name one of Savile's victims. Or Rolf Harris's or the Catholic fucking church who have been at it for centuries and um, are still being protected. And I just figured, you know, enough was enough. It's, it's important to talk about difficult things, no matter how exposing or, or how uncomfortable it is. I think it's, certain things are worth feeling a little bit ashamed and embarrassed about, I think. The thing, I mean, the thing that even if we were to look at this really reductively, which doctors are good at doing, and saying, what were the health effects of that period? Just looking at the health effects on you, physically, in terms of the need for reparative surgery, psychiatric care, uh, medication, relationship difficulties, your, your work uh, um, situation fragmenting, the, the, just the pure physicality of the effect and its imprint, its enduring imprint, is it's enormous. It is. I still I have titanium rods in my spine because he shattered the base of my spine. I've had three operations to fix it. A giant fucking scar because <laughs> in those days it, keyhole surgery meant, you know. <laughs> um, so, so that's there all the time. I can't get away from it. And I've been in several locked psychiatric wards. <laughs> and um, But I've been out since 2007, so you're all perfectly safe. There's nothing... Um, and nothing safe about that. Um, but which is actually, it's nearly 10 years, which is not too shabby. I'm not even on any meds now, which is nice. Um, but yeah, it's a lifelong thing. I think people often make the mistake of thinking yeah, once, it's over. once the abuse ends, yeah. it's done, and you can heal and move yeah. on. But they say time heals all wounds. That's just the biggest fucking lie in the world. I swear to God, it doesn't. It doesn't. People say, well, you can forgive. And no, it's just, I don't buy that. Um, so it's just it's it's like it's like having diabetes or having something that you just you learn to live with it. I but it's a lot worse than that because if this was diabetes or cancer or a flu epidemic, 
the spotlight, the national spotlight on it would be blinding. Well, the spotlight is blinding. But, they, nothing but they're not doing about anything yeah. about it. That's, that's the thing. I mean, to get this book published took two million quid in the Supreme Court because they said the information in it was, their words, too toxic. Um, which is staggering to me. It took 18 months, and it went from the High Court to the Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court, and is now, <laughs> it's now taught in legal schools, and it's referred to as the Rhodes case, and ended up being the most important case in publishing in a century. And it's some schmuck from North London who plays the piano ends up in the bloody Supreme Court. And, but that, I mean, one of their lawyers in court referred to me um, writing this book. He said, it's like a husband knowingly infecting his wife with AIDS for wanting to hurl this material out there in order to make a quick buck. And you just think, I mean, come on. I, and I wasn't allowed to say anything. I wasn't allowed to make eye contact. And you think, if it, <clears throat> if it took me with a, a few famous friends and a few quid in the bank and a team of lawyers, like you can't imagine, about 15 of the fuckers, <laughs> and psychiatrists and psychologists, it took me 18 months to get this book published. How many people are there who just... You, you can't talk about it. You don't have those resources. And you've had the same response on occasion to um, that being the prompt or the rationale for selling album. You know, or rather, that's what legitimizes Very occasionally. Yeah. I, may, I used to write for The Telegraph, and you know what their readers are like. So everything I'd write for them, all the comments would be about immigration. Or, and, and one of them, a few times they said, oh, you're using your backstory to sell albums. And I always answer that by saying, you know, I mentioned it in interviews, and I mentioned it for the first time in 2009 in a big Sunday Times double-page interview. Um, and it was two sentences in a big piece, and it just mentioned that at school I was raped, and, and that was that. And then the teacher at the time, the one who found me, actually, mm. who sent me back, she read that, and she got in touch with me by oh, Facebook. Yeah. Um, Facebook is good for some things, apparently. And, and she said, I, I, I knew this was going on. I couldn't deal with the guilt. I quit my job. I became a prison chaplain. And I just read this. And long story short, she went to the police with me. And she made a statement. And as a direct result of me talking about it, this guy was tracked down and arrested. And you know what he was doing in his 80s? Part-time boxing coach for under 10-year-old boys in Margate. Motherfucker. I'm really upset about that. Um, and therefore, and so you tell me I shouldn't yes, fucking say anything quite. because it could have been your niece mm. or your nephew yes. or your grandson yes. or so it's not it doesn't define who I am it's not all I talk about I'm talking about it here because you've asked me to talk about it um, I would equally happily talk about um, you know Beethoven um, or Rachmaninoff or, <laughs> or, or whoever but I think while there is still such stigma around it whilst this government inquiry is just hmm. just screams of a cover-up and God knows what. It's so incompetent. Or cowardice, or both. Really. Or, and I understand the reasons behind it. We don't want to open up the newspapers in the morning with our cornflakes reading about this stuff. Nobody wants to acknowledge that this is, as a species, what we're capable of doing to our most vulnerable. And yet, not only are we capable of doing it, we're doing it on a scale that is unprecedented and unimaginable. So, um, but it still has to be looked at. Tell me, you say that music, quite literally, saved your life. And you describe a point um, when you heard um, Bach Chaconi. Is that the right way to pronounce Chacon. it? Chacon. Yeah. Um, at the age of, what, seven or eight? Seven. I was a weird kid. I, I found a cassette. That's how old I am. But it was, a, it was, a, it was a, the Earth's axis, hearing it, 
It changed everything. Changed everything. I mean, thank God it wasn't a Bible. So can you imagine? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I found this cassette. I can't imagine it. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I put it on, and and it's a quite dark piece. It's a piece Bath wrote that everyone in Bath's life died. His, his siblings died, and then his parents died. He was orphaned by the age of 10, and he had 20 children. He was a proper player. and But... 11 of them died in infancy or childbirth, and then his wife dies, and, and he doesn't just sit on the couch, you know, drinking special brew. He, he, he was so prodigious and so prolific, and he taught and he composed, and, and he writes this piece of music in her memory. It's just a 15-minute long kind of... Imagine if, de- you know, someone you loved and you knew was dying, and you could spend 15 minutes telling them everything you wanted to tell them. And he writes this. He builds this kind of musical cathedral to her and then condenses it down into 15 minutes. And it has every single emotion known to man in it. And I heard this when I was seven, and it just knocked me to the floor. I'd, I'd never heard anything like it. And what it did was it allowed me to see that even though it felt like I was living in a war zone and nothing could be trusted and nothing was safe, there was something there that was beautiful and, and better than all of that. And that on its own. And that's not unique to me. I think you know, we've all had that experience with music. Um, whatever genre. And it came at that time, didn't it? Thank God, yeah, it did. And ever since that age, all I've wanted to do is is play the piano. And you have, extraordinarily. Kind of. I mean, I stopped at 18 for 10 years. I didn't get a proper teacher until I was 40. I've done it kind of all the wrong way. And um, But yeah, in 2009, I kind of started properly to to give concerts. And um, and now, yeah, here I am. Can we have another piece of music? Uh, yeah, okay. I feel like Kirsty wants yes, to say for uh, Desert Island Disc. Yeah. <laughs> Without the accent. <laughs> it's uh, three quid. Um, well, okay, I'll play a piece. Um, oh, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll play a piece that you'll all know. Um, you'll all know it within about 24 seconds, I reckon. Um, so I'm not going to tell you what it is because you'll know it, but it's a kind of a, a cool transcription of an opera. Thank you. 
Thank you. Yeah, I've got this quote here, Bach's Goldberg Variations are a masterclass in wonder and contain with them everything you'd want to know. Um, and then you say the piano's got 80 keys within it, within them there's an entire universe. What, just say a bit about that. And 88 keys. Oh. <laughs> I bloody hope so, Jesus. <laughs> it just, it's one of those things that always astonishes me. It's just, it's a lump of wood. I mean, it's a 150,000 pound lump of wood, but with copper strings and um, fake ivory nowadays. And and yet, look, I mean, it's just the sound it manages to create is, it, it's something else. We're listening to Bach 300 years later. I mean, we're not gonna be listening to Muse in 300 years or, or Justin Bieber, I don't think, but we're sure as shit gonna be listening to Beethoven and Bach and Chopin and there's something just magical about that. It's all made up of the same 12 tones. It's just, there's an infinite combination of sounds and um, there's, and also, everyone can do it. That's yeah. the thing. I'll play you another piece by Bach, all right? Get this. Every single person here tonight, as long as you've got 10 fingers, would be able to play this piece. This one in the book. The this is one in the book. Yeah. If you can give it 45 minutes a day and six weeks, and you can have one day off a week, um, and don't moan about I haven't got enough time. I've gone to the loo for longer than 45 minutes. So you, can, <laughs> you don't even need a big piano. You can get an electric keyboard for 30 quid on Amazon. Um, and I've written a book that explains how to do that, how to read music, how to use the pedals, which fingers to use. And then, you know, one day you're someone's house and there's a girl you like and, and there's a piano and they say, oh, does anyone play? Like they always bloody do. And you can smile and say, well, actually, I, I play a little bit of bar. <laughs> because it's such a lovely thing to do because everything we do today in order to try and feel better about ourselves, certainly I'm guilty of it too, is we look outside of ourselves. We're on Tinder or Twitter or we buy shit we don't need from Amazon or we eat chicken, you know, from a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> and this is kind of learning an instrument. It, it goes inside. It's a form of mindfulness, that awful word, but you don't need a fleet of bald commando monks to achieve mindfulness. You can, you can study the piano and you can do something that goes inside. Um, anyway, this is this piece. It, it's, it's 32 bars long in two minutes. And in six weeks, you could be playing it. And wouldn't it be hysterical if I really fuck it up? Thank you. 
But it, it, it's so simple, and it's so beautiful, and so many people have come up to me after concerts and said, oh, that was shit. <laughs> They've said, I used to play the piano when I was a kid, and I really regret giving it up. And you know, I had a terrible teacher, I had to do scales, and there's not a single arpeggio or scale in that book, I promise you. And it's just, I think, what I love, you're not gonna be lying on your deathbed thinking, I wish I'd sent one more email or looked at another spreadsheet. But you might well be thinking, I wish I'd written that book or learned to dance or played the piano or, so, you know, I don't buy that it's never too late. Hmm. And you see the creativity, in fact, as can utterly, at some base level, authentically, um, valuable and therapeutic without it meaning to be well i mean who doesn't mm. i mean well arm wrestle if you don't because that's a ridiculous thing i mean it's even sadder you know that progressive governments have completely fucked us on music education where it's now become a dubious luxury for people with money in leafy suburbs of north london who can afford to give their kids lessons and it, it, we know the proven positive impact, not just on children, but on Alzheimer's patients, on Parkinson's, on other degenerative conditions. It, it's tremendously helpful, learning an instrument. So, I'm just wondering if we could talk about, a bit about this then. What you, so on, just broadly dividing, on the one hand, what you've talked about in terms of um, you know, the, the very easy way we can fritter away our lives, celebrity, sensationalism. On the other hand, something that's true, and authentic, and you talk about this in our response as a society to classical music, the way in which classical music is aggrandized and made a remote, very privileged entity, as even the idea we call it classical music rather than just music, and that, that I just wonder whether that whole way of looking at the world filters down in all sorts of ways, even to the point in which we can have an honest conversation about what you were describing earlier on without retreating from it, this way in which we Park the true, yeah, and exist I, we've, in. We've forgotten how to listen. Mm. I think that's what it is. Mm. Everything has an app, and mm. everything is, you know, cuts off at 140 characters. And um, children's cartoons now. I have a son, and you know, when we were kids, do you remember they were quite simple? Do you remember Morph? Now they've got 52 things going on at once and sounds and lights and the stimulation and everything's so fast. I couldn't imagine anything more terrifying than growing up as a teenager in 2016. The pressure and the, the porn and the, it's just, it's madness, the world in which we live. And there has to be some kind of antidote to that. And look, we all do it. I, I sit on the couch and watch Simon Cowell and eat fast food and tweet while I'm doing my banking and grocery show, like we all do sometimes, but there needs to, Glenn Gould, one of my great heroes, one of the greatest pianists who ever lives, he had this weird ratio that for every time, every hour you spend around other people, you need a certain amount of hours on your own. And I could not agree more with what that. What was the ratio? I, he didn't actually say, oh, I don't okay. think. But my, mine's about one, mine <laughs> one hour with other people to about 23. Yeah. <laughs> On my own, because I don't really play nicely with others, and I get scared around people, and it just gets a bit overwhelming sometimes. And But I think it's, imagine if we all just told the truth, and we were honest in a nice way, not in an aggressive way. And, you know, when I say to my girlfriend, what's wrong, honey? She doesn't go, nothing. I'm fine. She says, well, you know, this morning when you said this, it really, and then we have a conversation, and it just makes things much easier. But we have seem to have become really used to skirting around subjects and not being direct. And um, I don't know why that is, but it, I find it difficult. Well, it, I mean, it played, you've made a, another, I've got another quote here about compassion, 
which comes back to your thing about listening. Real compassion comes from, and compassion is one of these words which the last two or three years in the NHS has kind of touted around pretty freely and readily, use the word compassion, tick. You know, what's the next? Uh, are you compassionate? Yeah, tick. But, but real compassion comes from understanding what feels true for someone actually is, for all intents and purposes, true. So actually hearing it, believing it, inhabiting it, and acting on it. Yeah, for all of us. I mean, especially for doctors. See, the best psychiatrist I ever met, I've seen a lot of psychiatrists. I was, I'd been sectioned, and I'd escaped, and the police were after me. Um, I thought I was like in a Jason Bourne film, but it was more like <laughs> Benny Hill or something. And I, um, and I, I called this guy, and there were two, there were two psychiatrists. The first one I called, and I remember just telling him what was happening, and the only thing he said was, that just sounds really, really awful. What you're going through just sounds absolutely desperate. And I just thought, oh, yeah, it really is. Because it was like the first time someone had heard me. And then after I got out, I went to see another, I went to see three or four who refused to take me because they said it was, I was too unstable and I needed to be in hospital and they wouldn't take me independently. And I said, but then I found this guy called Billy Shanahan, who's an Irish, lovely, older man. And I went to see him and he looked me right in the eyes and he said, I've read all your notes. And he said, we both know it's 50-50 if you're going to be here in a year. And let's see what we can do just to improve those odds just a little bit. And he smiled. And it was the first time someone hadn't gone, look, you're going to be fine, we can medicate you, and you've got nothing to worry about. And it's like he absolutely understood that suicide is a valid and sane option for a lot of people a lot of the time. And it was the first time I felt like that, for me, is compassion. <laughs> it's, he knew it was real for me. He therefore acted as if it was completely real. So I don't care if I'm looking at the sky saying it's yellow. If I really believed that, I needed someone to say, okay, yeah, it's yellow. And, and it just it felt safe. And I think <laughs> doctors especially have such a duty of care, especially given that psychiatry is such an inexact science. That's a really interesting description of how the, the truth being spoken in some shared space and way, difficult though that truth was, made you feel safe. Yeah, and I that, think it always does. Yeah, There's yeah, great, yeah. There endless quotes about, you know, the truth will set you free mm. and how, how important it is. Mm. and how We're so unused to it, mm. I think. Well, we see this very often. I mean, I, I encounter it a lot, I suppose, as an oncologist in terms of sometimes having to give quite, um, you know, difficult truths around the end of life and people skirting around it. And you see the avoidance of it creating, in fact, fueling, fostering an anxiety that when spoken, difficult though the truth is, and sometimes very painful, makes the space now safe. I don't know if it's always the case, but as a generalization. It, it, it is, and, and the great thing about music, to take it back to that, is that it's a, it's a universal truth music. You can't mess with it. It's a language we're all fluent in, even if we don't know we are. There's nothing more universal than music, um, maybe football, but, I, but music is it, all around the world. And, and so to have discovered that and to listen to it all the time, and it's somehow, it's, it's an... It's an unquestionable truth that only adds, and it never, ever lets me down, and it's always there. And I think that's why it, it's so valuable. In a, you know, in a world full of bullshit, it's <laughs> something you can count on. And you've got there's another, one of your other... You speak, and the, the interesting thing in, in, the, in the book is each chapter begins with a piece of music and then a, 
prescient, um, frank description of. Oh, the that's one thing life. worth saying. Yeah, don't buy the book if you don't want to. But there's a Spotify playlist that's free. Mm. Um, it's called Instrumental, which is the title of the book. And within that playlist, there are about 25 of the greatest pieces of music known to humanity, played by some of the greatest musicians, alive or dead. I've handpicked them. So people who you know, maybe want to know a bit more about classical music, but don't know where to start, because Christ, it's hard to know where to start. Mm. Um, and, and terrifying sometimes. Well, even yeah. if you think, okay, Beethoven's fifth, because we all know that, you type it into iTunes, and there are fucking 400 recordings, mm. and all the conductors are looking retarded. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But then, then you see they're kind of, hang on, you go, wait, adagio and scherzo, is it, they're four movements, is this one piece or four? And then you end up just going, fuck it, and you buy the Classic FM 50 best chill out classics ever. And, and that breaks my heart, because I'm sorry, but you know, some guitarist playing Waltzing Matilda with a trumpet <laughs> is not classical, that, that famous bit off the Hovisad is not, it's, it, so this playlist, if you Google Spotify Instrumental and my name, it'll come up. And um, it's just a really, really cool it bunch is. of pieces. It, they are. And there's, there's a Schumann, because there's a Schumann quote here about art being, the duty of the artist being to send light into the darkness of men's hearts, which is the truth, the corollary of what you were saying about truth, really. Yeah. Okay, we have time for one more piece of music. Okay, would you want to? Yes. Go and, uh, so, uh, <laughs> Is that all right? Please. Oh, we should we do it together? Oh, wow. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you don't be anywhere near that machine. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, a bit of Rachmaninoff, maybe. That'd be great. Um, yeah, um, I was in Barcelona a couple of weeks ago, and I said, as an encore, I, was, I said, I'm going to play some Rachmaninoff, and the whole audience went, yay. <laughs> well, never in my life have I been so happy than to hear that. Um, I love him so much. I've had his name tattooed in my arm in, in Russian. I, and ironically, I don't speak Russian, so it could say Elton John. I don't know. But <laughs> I, 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 so I, I guess I'll finish with um, the last prelude he wrote. It's like a symphony in five minutes, this piece. Rachmaninoff suffered from terrible depression, bipolar, I think. And this piece, it, it's such a simple melody. It's based on three notes, half an arpeggio, D-flat major, childlike in its simplicity. And it's constantly being interrupted by this kind of angular, aggressive octave. And it's, for me, it's the, you know, the good voice and the bad voice, and they go to war, and it goes completely mental um, by the end of it. And um, anyway, you'll see who wins at the end. <laughs>
Gut.